Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce Hardy. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. Uh, every It's a good day for me, Bruce, if I get out exercising. It's as, mm-hmm. kind of as simple as that, I find. Yeah. yeah, I feel better about the world and better about myself. And uh, if I can get out there, get outside and and run around a little bit, I feel a lot better. So here I am. Yeah, me, me too, yeah. And I, I've made it a, <clears throat> a central part of every day that I get out. And it's the only thing keeping me sane during this uh, during this COVID. The, the last day I walked less than an hour was March the 5th. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it's, uh, like I say, it's keeping me sane. So it's uh, it's part of the... Part of the to-do list every day. Get out, get moving. Good stuff. Do you take different routes around St. Albert, or do you have oh, one? many, many different routes. Different yeah. every day. Alrighty. Yeah, well, St. I, Albert's great for pedestrians. Really, really good. But you a lot of people. I think, like I think, initially the big joke was with COVID to everyone was getting fatter, kind of staying home and hopes. We got hack Bruce. Yeah, we did. A right, reader and right from a few so. listener was, last time, and I blamed it on you. I said that's no, Bruce. No, you're right. You're right. It is me. <laughs> Except my, I got my phone here too, but I, I think okay. I have a silent thing when I get messages. I don't. I'm gonna. I don't, yeah, I'm gonna power my phone off right now just to keep that uh, uh, person and probably other people happy because it can be annoying. I, I've I've come to almost ignore it, but it's hard, I guess. All right. I mean, I respond to it, but when I'm doing something else, I just don't pay any attention to it. Yeah. So let's do something else. Indeed. So I was saying the, the, the big joke was everyone was putting on weight and being indulgent and lying around. But I think, uh, at least for me, and I think, well, you got on the fitness thing right early on this thing. But I, I think a lot of people are starting to think, I've got to take care of my mental and physical health here. And mm-hmm. and we're getting out there in the, in the sunshine. And I, good for everyone who's doing that. And if you're not, I, I highly recommend it. So, Bruce, let's talk. Oilers hockey, and uh, just from I was just I just the flat something flashed in my head. Remember in the old in the WHA days, you'd go to the games and there'd be those three guys sitting there. One of them had a drum, and they'd mm-hmm. be pounding on the drum, yelling out "Ooh, ah, Oilers on the warpath." Uh-huh. Remember those remember those guys? Yep, oh, <laughs> they yeah, were there yeah. for years. Yep, there was Semenko soldiers up in section two there for. Uh, for quite a while, or Sammy soldiers, I think they they morphed into, and uh, they used to get the chants going. I remember the one, uh, "We want Semenko, we want Troy. Come on, say they're put out the boys." <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Semenko and uh, Jamie Troy, Jamie Troy, were two fearsome warriors. Yeah. And you know what those guys were there for was the mayhem, which was uh, very prominent in the hockey of the 1970s there's our mandatory 70s reference right off the bat all right crushed it <laughs> i was uh, well we had a few we just descended into reminiscing there for a second uh, although i have been thinking today about the playoffs and and how mm-hmm. big an impact it is going to be without fans in mm-hmm. the stands and how mm-hmm. much that's going to change the game and change mm-hmm. our perception of it and change the excitement around it and, and I hadn't been too worried about it, but then I, I got thinking about it. Boy, that it could be kind of a downer, you know, like um, if it just, we've all seen these games from Europe. It, 
various junior world championship events that are like nobody's there. And right. I guess if Team Canada's there, it can still seem pretty exciting, though, I think. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it could be a bit of a downer. What do you? I don't know. We'll see. Yep, there's going to be a whole lot different about it, that's for sure. Today we're going to talk about winners and losers at the weirdest NHL trade deadline slash playoff race that we've seen. The winners and losers of this strange process, which included a trade deadline. We'll talk about that. Okay. We will talk about uh, Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Miko Koskinen coming up. Uh, their their uh, year in review, which you've been working on, and, and how that's going to play into the, into the playoffs. And we'll talk about uh, the secret weapon of the Chicago Blackhawks and how the Blackhawks may not be able to use that player, but I suspect they will be able to use this player. Ian Mitchell of St. Albert, Alberta, a flashy NCAA puck-moving defenseman uh, who is signed with Chicago, and we'll, we'll talk about him. Why don't we just start there, Bruce? Let's just get this one out of the way. So Mitchell, I think, is 20, I'm not 21. 21. He's played three years of college hockey in Denver, where he basically was about a point a game player this last year. He played in the World Junior Team one year for Canada. Highly unusual for a NCAA player to make the World Junior Team for Team Canada. Nowadays. Usually they might have one guy, and he was that one guy one year. Well, that was 2019 he played in the World Junior. And then a year later he played in the 2019 Spengler Cup. Because the tournaments have the same year because the Spengler Cup ends on December 31st. So it's at the very, very, very end of the year. Okay. Uh, whereas the World Junior, uh, the one that starts at the same time as the Spengler Cup will be always one year ahead of it because it runs into the following January. Anyway, he was a very rare college addition to Team Canada at the Spenger Cup, and he acquitted himself very well. I saw uh, some of those games, and uh, and Mitchell played really well. So he's kind of a, you know, we don't know how he will do in the NHL. You know, uh, high-scoring players come from American hockey. Some mm-hmm. of them really pan out well, like Justin Schultz um, eventually has become a, a top puck-moving puck defenseman in the NHL. But I remember there was all this excitement about a defenseman called Mike Riley, Yep. Um, a few years ago. Let me just look up his stats, and I don't think he did as well. There's Gar- There's Will Butcher, who yep. strikes me as kind of a very similar kind of stats and stature size, size-wise right. to Ian Mitchell. But mm-hmm. the, So Chicago, um, they've traded away Gustafson, and they have Mitchell coming in. Eric Gustafson's yeah. a, quite a quality um, um Puck, puck moving defenseman. There's lots of questions about his defensive play, which I was reading out of Chicago. They're kind of hurting though for puck movers. Although yeah. Adam Bockfist is Boquist. 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 What is? It? How do you say his name? Do you know? I say it Boquist, but Boquist. who knows how he says it would be a better question. Yeah, he, he's not are, a bad little puck mover. Those are the two. Yeah, it, it was clear to me that Chicago, at the deadline, looking ahead to next year saying, well, we might as well get something for Gustafson, which was a third-round pick they got from Calgary. It wasn't that expensive, but he's only a rental. And because they had both Boquist and uh, and Mitchell uh, coming into camp next year. So they, you know, they probably thought, well, we've got that, uh, we got a puck-moving defender, we're going to make room for him. we got this guy, I'm uh, pretty sure he's uh, unrestricted, uh, Gustafson. 
So they were able to, you know, get something for him. It was your standard trade deadline uh, trade of a team that's out of the running, trading off a guy to a team that's, that's in the running for, for a pick. Except for the weird thing that nobody expected was Chicago actually making the playoffs. So they wind up kind of having to pay the price a little bit and that they won't have Eric Gustafson in the playoffs. And they may not have Ian Mitchell do this this. Uh, let's call it a provisional ruling by the NHL mm-hmm. that any player signed during the pause will not be allowed to suit up during the playoffs. I think it's strange, and I think Chicago probably will appeal, and I think they, they may well win that appeal. Why is Kale McCarr allowed to play? Why would Kale McCarr, uh, didn't he not sign? Did he, he sign signed before the, the season ended? Oh, he, he signed, signed in the playoffs. playoffs. Yeah. So how, how is that allowed, and they, they can't the, have Will Butcher The series play? was already, be, uh, already two games Ian in. Mitchell playing. Well, that's the question, and that's the question Chicago will be asking. He signed it when Calgary, uh, two games into the playoff series between Colorado and Calgary, went right in the lineup and had an impact right away. Uh, now, Kale McCarr, I mean, we're talking about a very high-level, you know, top-five overall draft talent who uh, there was a lot of buzz about uh, Kale McCarr before he ever did play that first game. And I don't think we can say quite that about Ian Mitchell, but the cases are similar enough in terms of when the guy signed. I mean, none of the college guys were signed until after the stoppage because college hockey was still going down when the when the when when the game came grinding to a halt. So even guys signed in the normal window right after the Frozen Four uh, technically signed after the stoppage. So this provisional ruling, I have a feeling that there there's. You know, obviously, a lot of the details they they worked out this big rough framework, and a lot of the details, such as the James Neal uh, draft pick um, question, you know, those are details that will get answered in due course. And I'm I'm half expecting that they'll they'll change their ruling. Was on eighty percent expecting ninety percent expecting they'll change their ruling. This was Bill Daly equivocating as only Bill Daly can, as he beat around the bush. And then another one trying to explain wh- why players uh, probably might be, maybe, <laughs> I, I'm, try- I'm trying to emulate Bill Daly and I'm, I'm oh. failing. Even I'm failing. And I know I do some of the same things. So. <laughs> he, he, uh, so here's Mitchell's stats, 32 points in 36 games. Mike Riley in his last year, three years uh, college hockey, he had 42 points in 39 games. And Mike Riley was really, really expected to be a good NHL player and has not ever lived up to that billing. Will Butcher, who also played at the University of Denver, Mm -hmm. uh, four years, and in his last year, he had 37 points in 43 games. And he's become, uh, well, he's kind of gone down every year he's been in the NHL. He's had a really great rookie year. Right. But uh, not so, not quite as sparkling since then. And then there's Kale McCarr. He had 49 points in 41 games in, in his second and final university yeah. college. No, so you can see there's, he's, a, he's in a different category. And what a fantastic player Kale McCarr is. Oh. Like, I, I really, you know, I don't pay a lot of attention to the opposing teams. And people listening to this podcast probably realize that because I, I often get things wrong. And I'm not, I, I don't have much to say about opposing players. But when I, but I, when, when I watched Kale McCarr, my uh, he blew me away with his ability, his talent, game, his, his game changer. You see it right away. Yeah. Oh God, what a what a great hockey player Kale McCarr is. So uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully this Mitchell kid is. 
Well, I don't want to wish him poorly just because he's in the Blackhawks. I hope he, he's I as hope good he's as Kale really McCarr. He's from St. Albert, so we got to cheer for him, I guess. I hope he's really good. Yeah, I have, my, I have a friend, who, close friend who knows his dad. So yeah. uh, I've been hearing about him. When he went to the Spangler Cup, I was given the heads up to keep an eye on him. So I did, and I was pretty impressed. Bruce, let's talk about Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Sure. And uh, you dug into his stats. I mean, I I'm did. really hoping to see the dynamite, the dynamite line together for the playoffs of uh, D for Dreisaitl, Y for Yamamoto, N for Nugent Hopkins, a might line. Uh, they were just, they were the, in their time together, I think a strong case can be made, they were the single most effective line in the NHL. I think for any line that played together more than 300 minutes, they had uh, easily the highest goals for a percentage. Um, more than, I think it was in like 73, 74% last time I checked. And, um, you know the other the other really good lines are 65 67 percent something like that uh just uh, that's what i want to see but what what do you what do you think um because i know that Tippett broke up the dynamite line and did and had nuge with uh, mcdavid what do you what what did you find out what what would you like to happen well i was pretty impressed with how well uh he adjusted to getting switched to the wing and after two previous shorter experiments with Connor McDavid, uh, the surprising and welcome aspect was that uh, Tippett put him with Dreisaitl and really loaded up the uh, uh, what in many people's opinion would be the second line with McDavid's almost by definition being the first. But by production, there's no doubt that the dynamite line was Edmonton's first line in the uh, in the second half of the season, and in that time, uh, uh, Nugent Hopkins himself was top five in the NHL in in scoring from January 1st through March 11th. So you know a nice stretch of games. There was uh, I think 29 games in there, and uh, he scored 37 points. And uh, 41 in his last 30, because he had a big night on New Year's Eve as well. And he went from, uh, uh, after 35 games, he had 20 points. He was minus 10. And he was just kind of spinning his wheels. He'd had a hand injury. And he kind of struggled with it before he went on IR. He missed two weeks. He came back. And he wasn't 100% when he came back. It was one of those injuries that, you know, it says he missed six games. But he was less than 100% for probably 12 or more. And then in the second half, he turned it just completely around, 41 points plus 11 in 30 games. And he went, almost got it back to a point per game uh, for the for the season uh, as a whole. Uh, his best points per game total of his career, second best raw points total, even though he only played 65 games. And he crushed it on that line at even strength, and he crushed it on the power play. And he crushed it on the penalty kill. Like, he was a jack-of-all-trades for the Oilers. And um, the, more, the deeper I dove into his season in writing the review, the more I'm thinking, geez, they need to sign this guy. And <laughs> ideally, well, he's coming up next year. I, I mean, know. He's got a Not year enough. to run. But as of, you know, technically after July 1st and any other year, would open a one-year negotiating window where the team has the only negotiating rights, but after which he's unrestricted free agent. And I would have said signing him is a priority, and it's an even bigger priority than I realized. And I'm a big booster of RNH, but but man, his his special teams 
performance was just off the charts. He was the only forward on the team, David, who played over a minute on both the power play and the penalty kill. And he played, in fact, 345 on the power play, so it was the same as the big guys. And a minute 43 on the penalty kill, which was third most on the team in both departments. And the time that he was on the ice, the Oilers' power play scored 11.5 goals per 60 minutes. And when he was on the ice on the penalty kill, the other team's power play scored less than four goals per 60 minutes. 11.5 to four, basically, was the split of how the the team with the power play produced, depending on which side of the ice Nugent Hopkins was on. So his his, uh, on-ice goals uh, results were off the charts. And a five-on-five, he was a killer. He was the second-highest points, 25 points, five-on-five after January 1st, second in the league, second in the NHL. So head of, you know, tied with Dreisaitl, head of McDavid. Bruce, I remember a few years ago there was – Serious talk of trading Nugent Hopkins. Mm-hmm. It's coming up a lot. And I remember mm-hmm. saying at the time, and writing at the time many times, they must not trade this player until they try him on the wing. Yes. They must not trade this player until they try him on the wing. If you do that, especially because they were they got to trade him, like people were saying, trade him for a good winger. Mm-hmm. They're like, What? So exactly. that's what we did with Ryan Strom. Remember how, exactly. how all that worked out? Yes. Yeah. Try him on the wing. See how that works. Because, you know, yeah. let's, why not? And mm-hmm. I don't think, Bruce, I don't think Nugent Hopkins, a top line center in the NHL, a good one. I don't. He's not. I don't think he's very strong in his own end in the defensive slot. And he's, is he, he's, is he a good primary puck carrier on a line? He's okay. I don't think, I don't think he's, that, that guy who picks up a top offensive line and moves it up the ice, he's not. But is he a brilliant, an absolutely brilliant complementary attacker to that player who does carry the puck? And this is what we saw all those years with Taylor Hall. Yep. Nugent Hopkins worked so well with Taylor Hall. And you had McDavid and Drysaddle there, and they just needed to, to work him in with one of them. And it turns out, and for whatever reason, I think he's got more chemistry with Drysaddle than he does with McDavid. Uh, those two guys working together with, with Yamamoto, like Nugent Hopkins and Drysdale, are both very unselfish yeah. hockey players with the puck. They both read the game very well. They're looking, they're past first hockey players, as yeah. is Yamamoto. And you have these three. It's it is like it is like Bruce a Red Army line. Uh, it is like a Soviet line the way these guys work together out there. The, the passing, That's the combination play, very intricate. It's it's even like Hall, Eberle, and Nugent Hopkins was they were pretty good at this. But these guys took it to a whole other level, just with their hustle and skill level and dry and you know the force of Drysaddle's game, and frankly the force of Yamamoto's game. But Nugent Hopkins has just found such a great home there. I agree, mm-hmm. and, and the interesting thing is, what number are they going to be able to sign this guy? At? Yeah. Like, I hope it's kind of like Matt Duchesne money. Like, doesn't he make about seven million a year? Does that yeah. sound about right? I hope. I hope yeah, they can like, get him. Like that's think about right. Somewhere around guessing. what he's making now, which is pretty good coin. I mean, they do pay the guy well. They paid him six million dollars a year for the last yes. seven years, and so you know he's he's put away you know enough to buy a few thoroughbred racehorses. Let's put it that way. And he, uh, uh, I mean, is it worth a raise of another million? Uh, 
you know, I mean, that's what they're going to have to haggle over, but he's definitely in the high rent district and his agent and his camp will be able to make a pretty strong case that, you know, he's still improving as a hockey player uh, deep into his, uh, uh, you know, into his 20s. And that's where, you know, your case, and I made the same case from a different angle, that the Oilers need to be keeping some of their core players, like, long-term, rather than constantly turning over their, their guys when they're 24, 25, 26 years old, as they've been doing time after time. And Nuge is on the vanguard of... Uh, Guys that have been on, the, I mean, this is his ninth year with the Oilers. He's played 604 NHL games now, all of them with the Oilers. I mean, the last guy to do that, play 600 games with the Oilers before he played anywhere else, uh, I think it was Alashensky. So he'll be, oh. he's 27 now. Mm-hmm, just turned 27. Just turned 27. So mm-hmm. he'll be 27 next year, correct? Right. Through yeah. the season, essentially. Yeah. So the, the first year of his new deal, he'd be 28. So we go 28, mm-hmm. 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35. If you go the full eight years, 35. Right. I, and I got to do these on my fingers, as people just saw. Uh, so that's that's getting into a little yeah. bit of the risky territory in the final two or three years of his contract. But, uh, you know, for players who really skate well, mm-hmm. uh, it's less of a concern. For me, than players who are play that physical game, but I, I, I'm comfortable with giving him prime time money, money that in, into his 30s because he, he offers so much to a team. He certainly found a role. McDavid and Drysaddle are going to be here hopefully that entire time. So I think you this is one of these players that you make sure you sign, and I I'd be surprised if they didn't at this point. Yeah, well, four or five years would be. Would be a nice Perfect. compromise. It'd be nice to get him for you know for a few years, but at minimum they need to extend him for for uh, a couple or three years. And give him more money short term is what I would prefer. Mm-hmm. Like if that's what he really wants, yeah, give mm-hmm. him you know do it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I expect what he really wants is more of the same. I mean, he's been digging on this team. He's played for eight different coaches, David, on the Oilers. He's never played on any other team, and he's still already played for eight NHL coaches. Most guys that have played for eight coaches have been traded four times, right? Not Nuge. So, uh, and he's finally, I mean, surely he sees this is a good situation. It's good for him. It's good for the team. Finally, he's in a you know, an environment where the, you know, the team is on the rise, and he's playing a big role. He's maybe not playing the role he expected when he was first overall draft pick in 2011 but he's playing a big role and he's playing in all situations and and he's a a very important player to the team and he's a huge glue player to this team like have you ever heard that guy complain about anything ever hear him say geez new or uh, mcdavid and drysdale got to play together all the time and i got milan lucic on my line and i'm supposed to be playing the other team's second toughs you know you you can you can look at it and you say yeah that's exactly what's happening but you will never ever hear the guy uh like he's a he's a real pro in my in my view very positive person uh part of the leadership group of the team and i have a lot of a lot of positive words for ryan nugent hopkins and he's he's my wife's favorite player so there you go well, he's one of mine. I got a 93 blue, you know, in my closet that I dig out when I actually get to go to the games. And uh, and uh, it's because I've always liked this player. I liked him when he was a Red Deer and uh, when uh, before Edmonton drafted him. So. 
just trying to get some stats here on him. I want to see, did you check, Bruce, how he did? Uh, why can't I get this? My computer's not, oh, here we go, by game, there we go. How did he do? I'll just quickly get this for us all, if my computer will cooperate. After he joined the Dynamite line. Well, exactly, well, basically 41 points in 30 games. Where did he rank in league scoring, do you know? Uh, top five, fifth in the league. Okay, there you go. That's what I was going to look for. Yeah, yeah. All those numbers I rattled off earlier. I mean, they they put the dynamite line together, uh, basically New Year's Eve and then January second. They made two big changes, and by January second in Buffalo, that line was together, and mostly it stayed together, other than one game um, along the way that they put Nuge with McDavid to try and get McDavid going. Now that's you wouldn't expect that. And then the very last game that they lost to Winnipeg, uh, where they moved Nuge up to or down to the uh, McDaniel line and uh, uh, put Ennis with, uh, into the Dynamite line. And uh, they played well, but they, they lost that game, uh, that last game that they played. So the very last look they, we had was of Tippett sort of trying out another option. But my my personal feeling is that the dynamite line was so good together why mess with that you know tinker with the McDavid line a little bit and you know if Chicago wants to put Jonathan Taves and company out against McDavid well then let let Drysaddle and company go out and crush their second line I think that's a good strategy frankly who knows we'll see you know I can see the attraction to having like the, the, the top the pairs together Mm-hmm. But maybe they'll maybe in the end they'll put Yamamoto with McDavid and well, that's another Nuch, possibility. Dry side all together and kind of mix it up that way. Bruce, let's let's look at the trade deadline now and the, mm-hmm. the like. And when I talk about the trade deadline, I mean the whole trading season where trades were made specifically around getting into the playoffs or doing well in the playoffs. And I start the the, the clock starts ticking on that for me on uh, December sixteenth when Arizona traded for Taylor Hall. And it mm-hmm. continues up to February 24th, the day of the trade deadline. I and, saw you had a picture hall at the top of your post, David. That seemed like yes. a good, uh, good idea to get some clicks. Well, we're looking for winners and losers <laughs> at the trade deadline. And he certainly factors into that, Bruce. Yeah, He certainly factors into that. because, And it's interesting. Because if this had been a regular playoff season, and this is why I call oh, it yeah, the year they, this one. Because this, this had been a regular uh, playoff season to suggest that Arizona was a winner of this yeah. trading trading season, you know, because they weren't going to probably weren't going to make the playoffs, and the yeah. only reason they they have a chance in the playoffs is because of this wacky system where twenty four teams are in the playoffs. Yeah. Taylor Hall, they they did worse. I'm pretty uh, last time I checked, they did worse when Taylor Hall after he joined the team, mm-hmm. and and New Jersey did better. Uh, so. Uh, I'm just throwing that out there, not for any particular purpose. But well, I got two I'm reasons saying they're for a winner. goaltending and goaltending. Yeah, for Arizona's goalie got hurt. Darcy Kemper got hurt in the second game Hall played. And uh, meanwhile, Mackenzie Blackwood went nuts in uh, New Jersey and really, really secured the the job. So both of those things are kind of, you know, not really Taylor Hall's territory. But the end result was exactly as you say. New Jersey got better. Arizona got worse. Excellent point to make. So I would say, um, anyway, will they have their goalie back, Arizona? Because they, they will have Taylor Hall. And now they're yeah. in the playoffs. And now they get a chance to use Taylor Hall in the playoffs, which was always the idea. 
So I suddenly they went from a, a total loser of the trading season right. to a total winner. So do you agree with that assessment? Well, they're going to be a lot harder to handle in the playoffs with Taylor Hall on the team. And if they got Darcy Kemper back and healthy and anywhere near the form he was throughout, the, he was having a career year. And then, yeah, I, I was watching the game that he got hurt. And, you know, the, the funky thing, a troll might point out that uh, uh, he got hurt making a save after a Taylor Hall giveaway led <laughs> to a jailbreak for the other team. And uh, Kemper got hurt late in the game. And I saw him going off to the bench very upset. And that's often the real key to, you know, is the guy really injured or is he just banged up, you know? And when when you see guys flinging his equipment as he goes off the ice and swearing and stuff, uh, it's not so much maybe that he's in pain, but that he knows he's, you know, ruptured something and he's going to be out for a long time you can just tell by the guy's reaction he's upset that he's you know he's going to rir and he knows it already and uh, uh kemper was a groin thing and he missed weeks and weeks in arizona fell down the the charts but uh they you know he certainly got lots of time to heal up now right so uh they're they're a much dangerous more dangerous team in the playoffs and they just reached the point where i was just about ready to write him off I've gotten to the point where I think, well, there's no way they're catching Edmonton. Maybe they get up to eighth, but they're still going to need, like, they, they've really fallen back, and the odds were stacked against them making it at all. So it turns out this 24-team uh, slate of hand has uh, given a few teams second life after what appeared to be an unsuccessful season. Another team in that same boat are the New York Rangers. So they traded uh, away their top D-man, Brady I think it's Shea, Brady Shea. Shea. Mm-hmm. And he uh, went to Carolina and they got a first round pick back for him. Now, the interesting thing, though, is I don't know if New York's actually going to miss Brady Shea, even in the playoffs, because although he's a very good player, they have these two young defensemen, Adam Fox and Tony D'Angelo, who mm-hmm. are just ripping it up point wise and moving the puck. So mm-hmm. they got their cake and eat it to the Rangers. They, they, got a, they moved out Shea, who's got a big Fox. contract big long-term contract so they got mm-hmm. all that off the books they have two younger players who completely can give the team what he was giving them plus they get a first round draft pick plus they went from being outside the playoffs yeah. to in the playoffs so they just this was a like a quadruple win for them mm-hmm. um this whole scenario really uh, has worked well for the new york rangers so i'm, I'm putting them in the winner's category yeah, well, they really shook their, their team up quite a lot this year. Of course, they signed Artemi Panarin, who had a fantastic season in New York. Yeah. And really should be in the conversation for the uh, uh, for the heart uh, yeah. in terms of, you know, just the level of his performance, uh, regardless of their playoff position. He really was a tremendous player for them at even strength. Uh, they got Capo Caco. You know, they won the second lottery pick last year, and they added Capo Caco to their team. They got Adam Fox in, you know, a kind of a steal of a deal, but he made it clear when he was in college that not only was he not going to go to Calgary, he wasn't going to, he wanted to go to New York, and that was that, and he wound up going to New York. He got traded twice. His rights got traded to Carolina and then to the Rangers. And he just crushed it in his rookie season. The NHL has, there's three fantastic rookie defensemen in the NHL this year. Kale McCarr, we already raved about. Quinn Hughes, who I will rave about at a moment's notice, and Adam Fox. And, I mean, they could be the three finalists for the for the Calder. I mean, the, the one guy in Chicago, the left winger, uh, Kubalik, who got 30 goals. Yeah. 
he's the one forward who, who might have a sniff, and there's no guarantee. They could well be three finalists, all being offensive D-men that all had tremendous years. So here's a, I'll give four other quick winners here. Mm-hmm. Vegas, Winnipeg, Vancouver, and Toronto. And, and it was it was painful oh, for me, Bruce, to write that list of winners. I didn't no want to have to write that. <laughs> I didn't want to have to say any of those teams is a winner. Like, honestly, I just, I it was just, it, one after another, I was thinking, like, what is going on here? <laughs> this just sucks. And especially because, you know. Thanks for Vegas, the West. Calgary, Vancouver, and Toronto. Yeah, could have been <laughs> Toronto, though. All right, so Vegas traded for Alec Martinez. Who they gave yep. him two second-round picks, but he had eight points in 10 games. Yeah. He was playing 21-28, so he's playing first-pairing first minutes. He's, he's just absolutely given Vegas what they need, and they, they traded a second pick uh, for Robin Lehner, who in three games in net had a 940 save percentage. So two huge additions that could help, help them win the Stanley Cup, frankly. So Vegas, good for you. Winnipeg picked up Dylan DeMello, who was playing about 20-plus minutes a game, and Cody Aiken, who was who, who did well for the Jets, a use, very useful forward. Vancouver got Tyler Toffoli, Toffoli who got 10 points in 10 games. And Toronto uh, made a trade where they gave up almost nothing and got Jack Campbell, a goalie, who in six games had a 9-15 save percentage, which is which is pretty good. And Kyle Clifford, who's, who's a physical fourth-line player. So when I looked up, you know... Vegas paid a pretty price for Martinez mm-hmm. and Lehner, but they're, they're getting full value on that price right now. And I thought those four teams, they crushed it. And uh, I, I wish they, they didn't, but they did. Well, two second round picks for Martinez. I mean, I don't know exactly what numbers the picks are going to be and, and exactly, you know, all the fine details, but two second rounders, the same price Edmonton gave up for Andreas Athanasiu. And, he had two points, and uh, Martinez, you say, had eight points in 10 games playing defense, 20 minutes a night. I mean, that's a guy who's, who's having an impact and almost, well, certainly from 21 minutes playing in their top four. Uh, and that was an area, a little bit of weakness of Vegas. So he, he would have really filled a need for them. And Leonard is it's an embarrassment of riches, of course. They already have Marc-Andre Fleury. And so Leonard, you know, whether he plays in the playoffs is another question, but they do have, uh, you know, two top-level goaltenders. And so if you uh, uh, if you do play Vegas in the playoffs, you're probably going to have to beat both of their goalies to beat them because if you get to one of the guys and they got the other guy they can throw in there to try and th- turn things around. So he's... Uh, 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 a uh, an interesting case, Robin Lehner, with uh, a lot of hit past history, but uh, some excellent excellent goaltending in the last couple of years. So here's three teams, Bruce, that that I figure lost at the trade deadline: Tampa, Buffalo, and the New York Islanders. Oh. Buffalo's obvious because they, even in this expanded playoffs, they, still they, did, they didn't give up a lot when they traded for Wayne Simmons, Michael Froelich, and Dominique Cahoon. But they gave up some picks, and they didn't even make the playoffs. So this is one of these. This is like Steve Tambellini circa 2013 when he traded for, you know, gave up a draft pick. I think a third round pick, was it for Smithson, or was it fourth? Jared Smithson and the Oilers didn't make the playoffs. Probably like a mid-round when, pick. I think it was the fourth. but Yeah. They'd already Man, traded their you, you do their that, that's not good. Three or four goalies. <laughs> The Islanders traded 
a lot to get Jean-Gabriel Pajot, like a first, a second, and a third, and, a, and I think also a second pick for Andy Green. And they proceeded to play seven games and not get one win. Then there's Tampa, who traded for Blake Coleman and Barkley Goodrow. I think they gave up first-round picks for each of those players, if I'm not mistaken. And neither of them, neither of them got major minutes or major any kind of point scoring, any kind of chemistry once they got to Tampa Bay at all. And Tampa Bay didn't do that well either in the little last stretch of games. So, of course, those two guys, of course, could completely turn it around in the playoffs, and Tampa Bay, Tampa right. Bay could be the winner of the trade deadline by the end. But the early returns... Not good. In theory, Tampa's bottom six just got a hell of a lot better, and their top six was already fantastic, yeah. you know. So they, they strengthened the depth of their team. And part of the reason they went for those guys and were willing to pay as high a price as they did was that they came in a reasonable uh, contract number. So they could okay. afford to fit them in under the salary cap because, of course, they have some pretty big contracts on that team, as you can imagine, with uh, Stamkos and, and Kucherov and Vasilevsky and so on, that uh, finding finding good cheap players was a high priority. And so that's what they went after in both uh, Goodrow and uh, Coleman. So I was surprised Coleman, you know, he'd been hot, hot, hot in Jersey and he just didn't seem to find his role right away. And then, of course, the season went away. But we'll find out uh, uh, more in the playoffs, as you say, whether that'll pay off or not. All right, let's I'm, leave that topic there. I'm liking and Tampa for the Cup, all things being equal. Yeah, you, that's if those are your third-line players, that's not a bad third-line or fourth-line players. Oh, kidding. They sure paid a pretty price, though, like two mm-hmm. first-round draft picks for those guys. Like, maybe you're, maybe they played a, paid a bit of a premium because of the contract situation where they Absolutely. weren't paid so much. Uh, Bruce, you are writing right tonight on the three-meter man, the Finnish Paul Bunyan. Miko Koskinen. Do you think uh-huh. it's going to start the first game or not? I, I'm almost certain it's going to be Mike Smith. Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm thinking. I'm almost certain it's going to be Mike Smith as well. And uh, by the numbers, Koskinen should be the starter. Like, he's got a significantly better uh, stats. His, his save percentage is 917 to 902 for Mike Smith. I mean, that's a, that's a large close. margin. And his goals against average a little bit closer, 275 to 295, but better. Uh, Koskinen, for a strange reason that I'm not quite sure where it falls between just fluke of distribution and something to do with the playing style of the two goalies, he faced 10% more shots than did Mike Smith per 60 minutes that they play. 10%, like three shots a game more against Koskinen than against Smith. And whether that has to do with Smith's puck moving or whether it's something to do with the way Koskinen makes the first save and they get, they jam away at a rebound or two, but there's nowhere to put it because the guy fills the net, right? Uh, you know, that, that would take a layer of analysis from, uh, uh, you know, Kevin Woodley or somebody like that. I'm not your person to... Uh, to uh, fully analyze what the net miners are doing. But I will say, uh, as stoppers go, Koskinen's a darn good one. And he's value. Uh, you know, the $4.5 million that Shirelli gave him that everybody was so up in arms about last year, that's the 20th highest contract for a net miner in the NHL. And Koskinen was 14th in save percentage. And, he, you know, he was in the top 20 in, in a number of, of categories. 
that suggests that you know i mean you're paying him if you're paying him 20th you're if he's even average uh he's outperforming that contract and he's definitely at least average and i would suggest a little little better than that so the contract for all the for all the hue and cry about it based on the performance he gave him this year not that bad i i i don't hear anyone bitching about it anymore bruce it was a hot topic of angst and anger all last summer from the moment he signed it it was like one of the main strikes against the old shirelli regime well, you know, shirelli the, final. Got fired the next day <laughs> and and you know like was nicholson in on it or not was a huge story and now like this no talk about it at all it's like dry Sidle's contract right no, no one raises talk about that do they but, really seriously yeah, yeah. <sighs> okay if only leon had signed for eight years at my figure you know would have been an even better contract. Oh, yeah. I grudgingly admit it's a good contract, but it could have been even that much more, David. Well, the, you know what? The Koskinen contract has worked out so far, and I, I expect it's going to. We'll see what happens, but, you know, it's worked out. So is the Chris Russell contract, Bruce. How's that for a controversial statement? So is the Chris Russell contract. He's been full of value of that contract uh, every year so far. And... Um, I think he got paid a little much for what he produced this year, but ideally you wanted him. He's a four or five, and ideally he's a five. And if you got enough other healthy guys producing to keep him as your five, then you're you're paying him a lot to pay on your third pairing. But yeah, he's insurance in a number of ways and, a, and an important penalty killer. So yeah, I fair enough that he might might have been a tad overpaid this year. But I'd say he's at least if an he's an an average NHL defenseman gets three point two million. I'd say he was at least an average NHL defenseman this year. So, uh, but he was earning more than three point two million. Uh, he was earning four. So yeah, maybe a little bit overpaid this year. Anyway, you can say that we'll save that debate for another day. Uh, yeah, I like I, I I love the three meter man's game. I he um, there was games where he was so dominant. You know, he'd get down on those knees, you know, cut, cutting off the bottom of the net. And play, they just still, his his shoulders are at the crossbars. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, he, the, the typical thing that would happen is he'd make a couple big saves in the first or second period. And then the teams would start missing the net with their shots because they all, they'd look up and they couldn't see anything. So they would mm-hmm. just try to get too fine with their shots. They think they'd have to pick the corner and they would miss the net, miss the net. Now, that's not reflected in the stats. It says there was actually more shots on net with Koskinen in that. But uh, that's what I saw, Bruce. That's what I thought I was seeing when I saw him in that. Did you ever notice that? Or I think I'm making that well, up. Well, sometimes, for sure. I mean, on a very hot night, the other teams would be shooting for holes that just weren't there. So another interesting thing I noticed about Koskinen was how, statistically speaking, he was almost identical to Corey Crawford. Who really? Be, for sure, Chicago's starting goal and out they traded away Robin Leonard they got a you know they got no goaltending controversy in Chicago it's Corey Crawford uh 917 save percentage the same 275 goals against average for Koskinen to 277 33.3 shots against for Koskinen to 33.2 for uh, uh for uh, Crawford and the only significant difference is in their one lost record. I mean, that's just a reflection of of Crawford playing on a poor team. It's not on his net minding. It's just his team wasn't as good. 
and they scored fewer goals for him than the Oilers did for Koskinen. And that's really the, the explains uh, most of that difference. But from a goaltending perspective, I mean, you could, you know, you, you, you could barely pick between the two lines between uh, Koskinen and, uh, and uh, Crawford. Let's check in here. It was very unusual. I remember when Koskinen uh, came over, you know, for European goalies, there was a small number of them who would come over at that age and succeeded, who, who mm-hmm. did well in the NHL. And um, so, uh, you know, there was a chance that he was going to do it. So that was a pretty significant season that Miko Koskinen had with the Edmonton Oilers. You know, I can see why, actually. I can to give people credit. There were there were questions around that contract, and and I I oh, was sure. I wasn't sure. Like I was thinking, it's like maybe a coin flip, um, whether he can come in and and do well here. So the I, I compiled a list when he came in of guys who had done well in the NHL, and a few of them a few of them had done well. And I was just looking looking at that, and suddenly the journal website eliminated what I was trying to look at the little chart mm. I was looking at. Thank you very much. Not at all. Uh, there was uh, Nicholas Backstrom of the Wild mm-hmm. and uh, Czech Roman Czechmanic. He had a couple good years. Nicholas Backstrom. Um, who else had good years? Backstrom was good for a while. Backstrom was good for a while. So, so that was the hope, right? Yeah. Uh, Martin Martin Gerber had a few mm-hmm. good years. Mm-hmm. Tim Thomas, who was an American goalie but played in Europe, had some absolutely brilliant years. He was Joe Hardy, David. Much later back, in life. He came back and he was like all world. He, he, you know, he played, I think he played four NHL games before the age of 30, Tim Thomas, something like that. I mean, he, he, he started way, way late. Do you think he was and, Joe Hardy or Frank Hardy or was he Chip? Well, Joe, no, Joe Hardy is a famous uh, athlete. From uh, from a famous play turned into a book called Damn Yankees, and uh, the, he made a deal with the devil. He was a fan of the Washington Senators, and he made a deal with the devil to turn him into this great athlete who would help the Senators, the lowly Washington Senators, beat out the New York Yankees for the for the pennant. So he's a he's a character without a Frank. It's Joe Hardy was his protagonist's name in this book from like 1960 or something in that era it's all about okay. making a deal with the devil john you know who frank hardy was yeah joe's older brother in the hardy boys and the Did hardy you read boys those? oh yeah remember who chip right, was? right up from number one. Oh yeah chet morton was it there, chip there. or was it chet 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 morton. Chet. chet okay and biff hooper yeah they, they and those a, books were written by chump. yeah franklin w dixon was the pen name of many different authors was it? I thought it was a Canadian guy who. I thought it was Leslie McFarlane. Is that who it was? Uh he yeah he uh, he was one uh, of the who Frank wrote about w. hockey. Yeah, he was one of the Franklin W. Dixons, maybe the main one. You're right. I just know that the name that appears on the cover of all those books was Franklin W. Dixon. Franklin W. Dixon. You know, Bruce, those books turned me into a reader. I didn't mm-hmm. read any books before. Mm-hmm. And those books, when I was in grade five or six, whatever it was, when boys started, I just started to pour through those books like so many boys did in the back in the day. Great, great stories. I could never get my sons interested. <laughs> any of them, they, you know, of course they wanted to read Harry Potter, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Franklin W. Dixon. 
Yep. So Frank and Joe, the Hardy Boys. Uh, is a pen name used by a variety of authors, different authors. Charles Leslie McFarland, a Canadian author being the first. There you go. And Charles Leslie was a Canadian journalist, novelist, screenwriter, and filmmaker. Uh, most famous for being the ghostwriter. Now, did he did he also write hockey books, Bruce Les, Leslie McFarland? Uh, I believe was he Brian so. Brian McFarland's dad. Anyway. Uh, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there, there are these uh, lineages of, you know, families of that. Um, you know, I mean, Brian McFarland. Here we go. Had a His son, reading, Brian McFarland, right? is a well-known yeah. former commentator on Hockey yep. Night in Canada. Yeah, makes so sense. So that's how I was bringing it back to hockey, Bruce. I knew I would get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's a whiff of hockey in any of the... Well, I only read the Hardy Boys up to book number 45, The Mystery of the Spiral Bridge. I think that's where I went out. Uh, and they were just putting them out at that time. And they, But they wound up getting into the 50s and into the 60s, I think, the series. But I didn't know any of the, old, the later books. But there's no hockey in the first 45 books. I read them all. <laughs> I'm just checking, Bruce, if book number 45 of the Hardy Boys. Mystery of the Spiral Bridge. You can look it up. Okay, let's just check that. <laughs> Dude, that's, that would be like an amazing mystery. You do say you remember mystery of this. You do say you remember things from the past very well. Better than what happened yesterday. The uh, the spiral bridge. Okay. The I remember the yeah the the, the tower treasure and books like that. I, I probably read about number one. Tower treasure. All right, here we go. Amazon.ca Hardy Boys number forty five. The mystery of the spiral bridge, Bruce. We are not worthy. <laughs> Thanks for talking tonight, Bruce. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. And then did you read the Isaac Asimov books next? I read some of the Isaac Asimov books, for sure. I read I.